Uh, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn there to uh, James chapter 5. It's way back in the back of the New Testament, almost to the end. You should know it by now. We've been in a few weeks. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, there's some in the aisle. Well, uh, there's a few, a few left. Um, you guys grab one. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, please keep it um, and, uh, and talk with us about whatever you would read there. We'd love to, to, to help you uh, and read that with you. So I was into a, a show a while back, and the main character is uh, an older, wealthy, um, he, ex-TV uh, uh, writer. He, he had a hit show, and so he has a lot of money, and he lives in an affluent part of Los Angeles. And he's a real, real curmudgeon, too. Uh, the, the show is basically a character study of his complete self-absorption. Uh, and in, in one of the episodes, his friend had come over to visit, and on the way into the house, she ran into some of his neighbors. And they had warned her about uh, a rash of burglaries that had been happening in the neighborhood, and that uh, her friend should be on the lookout. Upon hearing this information, however, he was, he was concerned, but not in the way that you would expect. This is how he responded. What are you talking to the neighbors for? You don't need to talk to the neighbors. I'd rather have the thieves than the neighbors. Thieves don't impose. The neighbors want your time. The thieves want things. I'd rather give them things than time. Community is is difficult. (laughs) We've been uh, walking through the wisdom literature of the Bible, and uh, we're going to wrap it up actually next week. Uh, And if there's anything that we've learned through our study, it's that relationships are a lot of work. On a human level, Job is essentially a book about how not to comfort a friend in grief. Ecclesiastes is about a man who finds emptiness in the complete absence of real relationships in his life. Proverbs is a man doling out wisdom to his son about how to treat people well and how to make a good life for himself. And James, where we've been the last few months, in case you're visiting, has been no different. Be careful how you live. How you live shows what you believe. Take care of the poor and the weak. Watch what you say to people. Don't quarrel and fight with each other. Don't speak evil against each other. Don't grumble against each other. So, why are we talking about human community, relationships, when our passage passage today is about prayer. Prayer is supposed to be intimate and private, right? I'll keep you in my thoughts and prayers. Or I'll keep you in my thoughts, depending on uh, who you're talking to. We're supposed to retreat to our prayer closet. Didn't Jesus even say that you should go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you? Of course, engaging in the personal aspect of the Christian life through prayer is crucial. But James doesn't envision a Christian life apart from the local church. And the most important thing that the church does together is pray. James turned a corner last week when he shifted his focus back to where he began the, the, the letter that he was writing. He tells the church to be patient for the coming of the Lord. Your suffering has driven you inward instead of upward. Your lack of self-control, your giving in to the passions that war within you, your quarreling all 
symptoms of your impatience. Your attempts at keeping the life you have rather than realizing the one you will receive. What is the essence of waiting for something that you're excited about? It's hope. My, uh, my family is taking a little vacation soon, and, and we've been talking uh, about it around our house nonstop. Um, we've been planning and, and dreaming and looking at maps and making reservations, and it's exhausting and also wonderful. <laughs> um, and, but it draws us all together in anticipation. If we don't frame our discussion of prayer the way James has framed it, we could get lost in our preconceptions. James is writing to the church. Christ is the cornerstone of a building made up of living stones that fit together. No Christian is an island. The Bible doesn't have a category for someone who loves Jesus but doesn't love his church. And if we love the church we will pull each other toward Jesus. So if we're to make it to the end, we have to be a church whose default response to life is prayer. And James, in this text, gives us three scenarios where that happens. Praying for yourself, asking to be prayed for, and being reconciled to each other in prayer. Um, If you would uh, stand with me, let's read God's word together in his honor. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So James starts out by calling people to pray for themselves. Is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone among you cheerful? You should pray. You should sing. Give it back to God. Bring him in on it. Our God is a personal God. The same God who created the moon and stars and set them in their place created you. You're the only animal to which God gave the ability to decide whether or not to do what he tells you to do. He told Adam to name the animals, to work in the garden, to eat everything he could find, except for for one particular tree. He doesn't do that for anything else. Everything else he just created to do its thing and unwittingly gives God glory while it does it. But for us, God is a personal God. And prayer starts with him. Not because we know about him, but because he knows us. J.I. Packer put it this way, I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. No moment, therefore, when his care falters. 
What makes a relationship close? When is a friend a close friend? Typically, at least from our perspective, it's, it's how well they know you, how, how well you feel like you know them. I spend a decent amount of my working life in uh, cafes and, and coffee shops around Nashville, and inevitably, uh, a famous person will walk in, or at least you know, a celebrity of some kind, a musician or, or, or sometimes maybe someone I only recognize. Um, but occasionally, some brave soul will approach one of these uh, celebrities, telling them about how they've, you know, they've met before, uh, how maybe their cousins were at a party together in college, or um, maybe one of their songs really touched them. Uh, and, and, you know, they're usually really gracious, uh, you know, because this is Nashville, and we, that's how we do it. Um, and they'll talk, for, talk with them for, for a minute. Uh, but when those, those two people part ways, would anyone consider them close? A relationship is founded on a mutual effort to know the other. They're not always equal amounts, but there is effort on both sides. And with a close friend, you're not even really measuring. Friendship is usually about figuring out where your desires line up with each other. God gave us prayer as the tool to do that with him. If the Bible is how we learn about God, prayer is how we know God. The psalmist Asaph, in Psalm 73, he wrote about his journey in personal prayer this way. He knew God to be good. He believed Israel was was God's covenant people, but he personally wasn't seeing the fruit of it. He struggled with the fact that those who didn't believe this, those who mocked God and pursued uh, their own enjoyment in life and their own ease, they actually got what they wanted. They, uh, They seemed to indeed have it easy. And they, they got rich, and they ate until they were fat, all the while Asaph was, as he destri- described it, stricken and rebuked every morning. He felt like a disciplined child looking out the window at the other kids playing. Maybe he felt like I did last night while I was working on this sermon, and a friend tweeted that he was on a date with his wife at the movies. That's not true. I was really having a good time. Listen to what, listen to what he does. To Asaph, not me, or my friend. But when I thought about how to understand this, when I thought about why the evil were prospering, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Asaph thought the problem was, was out there. He thought his envy was the result of the prosperity of others, but it was really the result of him forgetting his future. Earthly material prosperity is nothing compared to what awaits him in faith. After he prays, see how his perspective changes. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. His heart was filled. He was satisfied. In this life, prayer takes us, or let me say it, it should take us into a place where we remember God's promises, where we hold them up to him and we ask for him to do whatever it takes in us to see those promises fulfilled. Another Psalm 51. This time David is writing. He's just committed and 
and is experiencing the exposing aftermath of a chain of moral failures. This is how he describes prayer. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. When you pray, friends, you are not among an equal. It's not like leaving a lunch conversation with a friend and and second-guessing everything you said. Like, oh, did I explain my feelings well enough? Did they think I was weird when I said I liked that TV show? God knows your inward being. He has direct access to the parts of your heart you won't even give to your spouse. You don't come to God on your terms. You come because he called you there. You need only respond. And James gives us two examples of that calling. Suffering and cheer. The response is the same. If you're suffering, pray. Pray for wisdom. Pray for help. Pray your heart toward God. James told us in chapter 1, that we should do this. God gives generously to all without reproach. If you don't think God is responsive, if he's not giving generously to you, at least that's your perception, do you, do you pray that? Do you know it's not a sin to tell him that you don't see the evidence of his goodness in your life and that you want to? It's not a sin to say that you're disappointed. It's not a sin to tell him how you feel. Maybe some of you this morning just need to hear that God is big enough to handle your prayers. If you're happy, pray. Thank God for his kindness. Memorialize your happiness and thanksgiving to him. He is your portion forever. The nearness of God is your good. As David put it, or as as Asaph put it, When you feel that way, when you feel the nearness of God, give him praise. Sing. I have have two boys at home, and one of them uh, hits a certain stride at sundown, which unfortunately right now is like 4 p.m. And he, actually, no unfortunately, this is a great thing, this is not a bad example. Um, He he runs from one end of the house uh, to another, back and forth, um, he sings, he dances, uh, he does donuts in, in the carpet. Um, and, and when I have the energy, I'll, uh, I'll get on the floor and, and we'll wrestle and have a good time. And my wife and I, um, we, we don't really know what it's about. He's just delighting in life. Um, but the whole time he does it, the whole time he does it, where is he looking? Straight at us. Big old smile on his face, like right now. He's just happy. He knows that he's happy. We know he's happy. But it isn't confirmed. It, it doesn't really matter until he shows it to us. And we smile back at him. How much more does your Father in heaven, who did not spare his own son for your sake, want to see your happiness? He didn't create you for a life of misery. When in his kindness you aren't feeling the pain and brokenness 
of this life, thank him for it. Ask for more of it. Ask him to remind you of it when you don't see it. In the next section, James singles out a particular kind of suffering, physical sickness. And he shifts from praying for oneself to calling for the elders of the church and having them pray. Many questions uh, come up in this section. It gets, gets kind of strange. Why does he separate suffering and sickness? Why is, why is now sickness a specialized category? Why, um, and, and why should you then call on the elders in that case? And then verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. What happens when a prayer of faith doesn't heal? Was it not a faithful prayer? Are the elders the one that prayed the prayer of faith? What about all the language that Paul uses about gift and healing? Do you just need the elders? Why does he switch to talk about confessing and forgiving sins? It's very interesting. Um, well, there's a good chance that the person that calls for the elders actually is sick because, because he moves on to talk about um, something outside the body or something more than the body. Um, he he, he uh, distinguishes between the body's condition and their soul's condition. What kind of sickness is he talking about? Probably something acute, something bad enough to keep them in bed since they, couldn't, um, since they had to call for the elders to come to them. Maybe a fever, a bad fever. Um, I, I don't know what life was like in ancient Near Eastern culture, but um, I know from Downton Abbey that, that a fever is a really, really big deal. Um, and 2,000 years ago was probably, probably not a picnic either. Um, let's just say that, that sickness for them was even more confounding than it is in our day. They even anoint the patient with oil, probably actual oil. Um, some people think maybe medicinal, but, but most likely it's a symbolic reminder of God's care over his creature. Elder here is one of the two words in the New Testament uh, the, tes- the New Testament uses for overseer or pastor. So really talking about elders. Uh, we know from the book of Acts that this office was reserved for the shepherds of the church, the caretakers. And one of their primary functions, apart from teaching people about Jesus, would have been prayer. So it's no surprise that illness would have provoked this response. James is telling this new church to use their shepherds for what they're there for, to feed their sheep. This looks like teaching the Bible, modeling life with the knowledge that Jesus is alive and doing it all through prayer. And getting sick is, is a fundamental aspect of being human, drawing our attention away from our ability in this life to our inabilities. It should be normal to seek prayer for sickness. It's one of the primary functions of the shepherds of the church to sit with and pray for those who are sick. Some of you have had it way worse than I have, but, but uh, being sick, at least for me, has produced some very rich times of remembering that our bodies are complicated machines. They, they really shouldn't work at all. Um, the, the God who designed them also promises a future where those who want to be with him will get a new one that works perfectly. Paul wrote that what was sown is perishable, what, what is raised is imperishable. If prayer is to be our default response to the realities of life, Don't forsake the opportunity sickness affords you to do that. It's a grace that God gives to all of us. But how do we lock into the power of this 
prayer of faith. James says the prayer of faith will save. James seems to be saying the right prayer, maybe prayed by the right person, will in fact heal sickness. We know what James means by faith. He's used it before in this letter. And it means an unshakable commitment to God's will. It's a contrast to his idea of double-mindedness. He's used that word. Or being divided in your allegiance. Trying to keep one part of your life separate from another. It's like a lie. Once you tell a lie, you now have two lives to live. The more you lie, the more lives you have to maintain before getting exposed. It's an awful and exhausting way to live. It's trying to keep one foot in God's kingdom while you leave the other in the world, looking to satisfy the cravings of the flesh as any person with no relationship with God would do. Faith is exercised in prayer the way Jesus taught the disciples. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's an unwavering devotion to God's will because he's God. But I have this kind of devotion, you say. I really love God. And I really want him to fill in the blank. Heal this baby in the NICU. Heal my much too young friend who lost to cancer a few years ago. Take away these desires that I shouldn't have. And he's just not doing it. I've prayed that prayer many, many times this morning. The Bible just isn't consistent in describing the physical effects of prayer in anything, let alone sickness. And certainly not in James, who just gave us an example of patience in Job, a man who spent years perplexed by his sickness, both physical and emotional. We can't reduce God to something that we can explain on our terms. Faith, as James understands it, is a commitment to God's ability and desire to execute on his plans. Faith is never about outcomes that the Bible doesn't promise. Faith is saying that regardless of what my eyes see at any given moment, what they have seen through the gospel anchor me to God himself, not in the outcome that I want in any given situation. But mysteriously, we still pray. Jesus told us to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. Paul prayed continually for at least three different types of suffering uh, that God did not heal. Not to mention beatings, hunger, staying up all night, fearing for his life on a ship that was going to run aground. And I I really, I wish we'd cut the Bible some slack. Uh, Motivation typically comes in absolutes, does it not? What kind of coach before a game says, okay, all right, okay, sort of, we need to go out there and we kind of have a chance maybe to beat this team. So go out there and, you know, consider putting some effort in. No, what do they say? Get out there. 
Leave everything on the field. Win. Our rallying cries are to spur us to action without knowing the outcome. But it's not just about the outcome as if the only thing God is concerned about. It's dangerous to reduce prayer to some kind of computer or mathematical function where you give some input and you get some output. Paul Miller, who wrote a really nice book on on prayer called The Praying Life, we went through it a couple years ago um, at Trinity. He said it this way. We simply cannot see the causal connections between our prayers and what happens. All the best things in life have no visible connections. For example, selfless love. Love that gives no credit or payback is completely irrational. Because there's no visible connection between what love gives and what love gets. Trying to dissect prayer is like using a magnifying glass to try and figure out why a person is beautiful. If you turn God into an object, he has a way of disappearing. We do the same thing when a spouse or a friend consistently treats us like an object. We pull back. Be careful what terms you set when you approach prayer. James isn't done with the elders quite yet. He also, he says that if a sick person has committed sins, he will be forgiven. He seems to be concerned about more than the sick person's physical well-being. Early in the Gospel of Mark, a similar situation to this has occurred. There's, uh, there's this guy who, who's uh, not just sick, he's paralyzed. And his friends are so desperate that they carry him to Jesus. And here's what Mark writes, this is chapter 2. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, this is not their house, by the way. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, Mark is uh, recording this in, in part because the reason Jesus is, is making this scene is because the Pharisees were watching, and he's teaching them a lesson. Um, but he does heal the man, and, and shortly after that, he walks out carrying the same mat he was carried in on. And you can imagine James having witnessed, if not that exact scene, probably many like it, and whom we've seen jo- Jesus quote verbatim, painting a similar scenario here. Oh, good, you're sick. It's a perfect opportunity where everything in life grinds to a halt. Where you have to acknowledge the limits of your humanity. An opportunity to break from your routine and consider your life. Don't do that alone, lest you may despair. Call your shepherds. Call those God gave you to care for your soul. You need to get to Jesus however you can. There is nothing an elder does that's more important than prayer. If you're a member here at Trinity, um, I hope you know that we're praying for you regularly, whether you like it or not. Um, But James also tells you to ask for it. We we send out an email before our monthly elders meetings. Uh, We we sort of slice up the congregation, and, uh, and every month we pray for a chunk of you. So... You at least get prayed for once, uh, hopefully more than that. Um, but we email out to say, hey, is there anything we can 
pray specifically for, please respond to those emails. We'd love to pray and rejoice at God answering those prayers. We still pray for you, but we would love, um, we'd love to know how we can specifically pray for you and watch what God does. So we've looked at personal prayer, elder prayer, and now we come to this idea of mutual prayer. James says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as, as it is working. If we overlay James, uh, last week's message from earlier in chapter 5, we start to see the image that James is forming with this patience at the Lord's coming. Instead of grumbling with, to one another and complaining, you should pray. A church that is waiting together is praying together. The language here suggests that the confession that Christian should engage in is one toward the offended party. Somehow James is tying in the offense of a brother or sister with physical sickness. No one is totally sure what, what's going on, but we can say this much. James is more concerned about the power of prayer than the circumstances for it. Pray because prayer works. If you've offended someone, go confess it. And then pray together. The only thing that kills darkness is light. And dragging something into the light without prayer can be disastrous. There is no situation where prayer is not a good action step. Did you catch how Mark recorded Jesus' reaction to the paralytic a minute ago? When he saw their faith... Jesus saw that people loved their friend. Jesus saw people that were desperate. Here's Paul Miller again. The persistent widow and the friend at midnight. Those are parables that, that Jesus told that he was, he was discussing. They get access from their persistent prayers. Not because they are strong, but because they are desperate. Learned desperation is at the heart of a praying life. One of the joys of leading a church is when we're not needed. When we get word that people are bringing each other to Jesus, it's a great boon to our own prayers as elders. It's an answer to our prayer that God do things that are only explained by Christ's resurrection and His Spirit working among us. If prayer has such great, great power, why do we not do it? Maybe we're too cynical Maybe we just don't hope in much of anything anymore. Maybe it's that we're post-Christian. Every one of us has a device in our pocket with access to the sum total of human knowledge. We just don't need God. Or maybe not any need for sort of daily guidance until we're hit with tragedy. Maybe it's because we expect too much from ourselves. James addresses this one head on. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, heaven gave gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Two observations about Elijah. He was a man, and he was persistent. If anyone was to be a champion of prayer to a Jewish Christian, it, it would have been Elijah. Uh, Elijah was a prophet. Um, he, he came along 
uh, at a time when Israel had um, really hit rock bottom. Um, God had told Solomon that because of his sin, that, that, uh, that the, the kingdom would be uh, really shaken up. And, and what happens is it gets divided in two, and uh, the, the lower part of Israel, Judah, is, is, is faithful, and the, the upper part has many, a string of bad kings that were not faithful to the Lord. And it ends up, uh, this guy named Omri, he was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him, provoking the Lord to anger. Well, he had a son, Ahab, who became king after him, and he did more evil than all who were before him, and more to provoke the Lord than all who were before him, and it had been a light thing, as if it had been a light thing to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the guy who originally rebelled and split the kingdom. He even erected, Ahab, erected an altar for the Baal gods, who were these uh, very common in the ancient world uh, to worship these false idols, who were essentially the worship of Satan himself. So Elijah shows up and tells Ahab, as punishment, there won't be any rain for years. And he, he has this very interesting life. He goes and lives next to a brook, and ravens bring him bread and meat. And uh, he goes and stays with this woman and her son. And the son actually gets sick, and he dies. And Elijah prays for the boy to live, and he rises from the dead. After a few years, he goes back to Ahab, and he challenges him to this uh, contest. How long will you... Will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So, he, uh, so the contest was that they would build these two altars. And all the, the 450 prophets of Baal would try to get um, this, this bull that was on their offer, altar to uh, ignite in flames, that, that the wood would ignite and, and burn the sacrifice. And then um, Elijah would do the same. And of course, they um, are unsuccessful Elijah even taunts them. Maybe, maybe your God's dreaming or fell asleep or maybe he's in the bathroom or on vacation. Um, and then it's his turn. And they even pour water all over it to make sure it's good and wet, uh, you know, just so it won't spontaneously combust. Uh, and then he prays. Answer me, O Lord, that this people may know you and that you have turned their hearts back. And of course the fire comes down and it consumes not just the bull, but the wood and the rocks and everything around it. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah was a pretty spectacular hero. He even appeared in the New Testament to some of the disciples with Jesus and Moses. But James focuses on his prayer life. Of all the things Elijah did, James calls out his prayer that God's will be done. James didn't care about the amazing things Elijah did because it wasn't him doing them. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, Elijah was just a man who prayed. Elijah wasn't the hero. God was the hero. The second thing to notice about Elijah was his persistence. He persevered through years of human uncertainty. 
God did not map out every detail of his life. He got a simple next step. Such was the life of the prophets. We have a saying in the business world that we often overestimate what we can accomplish in the short term and underestimate what we can accomplish in the long term. And the image there is that um, we, think, we think we can accomplish more in, in one sitting than we can. Um, but we don't count the value of sort of slow, methodical process, progress. So the, the idea would be that you, um, you, know, you, you uh, are going to run a marathon, and so you just try to run you know, 26 miles the day before and see how it goes, and then you know, the next day uh, you'll be set. Um, but prayer, it, prayer is, like, is exactly like flexing a muscle. It's, it's something where a habit of short sessions many times per week over a diverse set of circumstances and moods is better than saving it all for when you get a large break in your schedule. Another benefit of slow, methodical prayer is the dampening effect that it has on temptation. When you've spent time communing with the Lord, you're abiding in Him. Jesus said that if you abide in me and I will abide with in you. I will abide in you. Prayer is the the engine for this abiding. We're not called to be amazing. We're called to be prayers. Did you know that it's okay not to know how to pray? The Bible says that we don't know how to pray as we ought to. That we have a high priest in Jesus that can sympathize with our weakness. That in every respect, he has been tempted as you are right this moment. And that he's actually praying for you. Not only can God see your secret heart, he took it as his own. Not only does he see your shame, he took your shame. There is nothing that you can suffer that Jesus did not. Don't you want a friend like that to pray for you? Next week we'll mark the end of our wisdom series. Wisdom is all about the fear of the Lord. And what shows that better than prayer? It's the one Christian activity that doesn't make sense apart from the gospel. People can, uh, we make a church out of a lot of things actually. Uh, a football game, a concert. Just last week, I read an article about these researchers at Harvard, and they're doing a study on this. They were wondering exactly what makes a religion. The article focuses on CrossFit, a chain of gyms that focus on high-intensity interval training. It's really, it's really good, by the way. I, I enjoy it. Um, but the people they talk to, uh, one, one, one devotee, devotee says... Uh, CrossFit is family, laughter, love, and community. The co-founder of the whole enterprise even claims that they're saving lives. 350,000 Americans are going to die next year from sitting on the couch. That's dangerous. The TV is dangerous. Squatting is not. You can make a religion out of church just as easily. That reading the Bible can make you a more cultured person. Worshiping at the right place could gain you respect or give you the right connections. 
But prayer is the hinge. Prayer is the one activity that doesn't make sense unless there's something supernatural behind it. Going into your prayer closet, talking to the God of the universe, only makes sense if you've been given access to him. It only makes sense if Jesus is alive, and it's for anyone who trusts him to do so. If you do not identify with Jesus, if you do not trust or even want him to represent you before God, when you are one day judged for your life on earth, have you thought about the fact that he is not praying for you? That he is not defending you against the accusations of the evil one, whose case against you, by the way, is unequivocally condemning. Satan only needs to point out how you already are. Jesus, however ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Will today be the day that you ask him to? Friends, like James' churches that he was writing to, we are a diaspora. We are dispersed, separated from our real home in heaven, waiting until Jesus brings us there. And the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Prayer is all we have until that day. Let's do it in faith. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift that is prayer. Thank you that you didn't leave us with instructions and then tell us to go figure it out. You didn't tell us everything, but you told us just enough. And God, your spirit fills in the gaps. We pray, God, that you would make us wise, not in our own abilities, but in the fear of the Lord. Help us pray, God. Teach us to pray. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.